Bay Mountain View. Thanks for joining us again this morning. Here we are. Here we are. Uh, coming to you with a new kind of normal. And what I'd like you to do, if you would, take some time this morning and fill out our virtual communication card. Uh, that should be available in the, the description of what's going on today. It should also be available here in a moment by Mountain View Christian Church. Uh, fill that out. Uh, submit your prayer request to us. Let us pray with you and share with you. Uh, you can also go to our website, mvcclive.com, and you can give there uh, as we are not passing offering bags around. I don't know if you knew that or not, but we're not doing that. Hey, I, I want to just kind of turn the page a little bit for the next couple of weeks. Uh, this series was not the planned series, but I just wanted to to talk and address some of the things that have been going on uh, in our world and how we get to react to it as Christians. In, in recent weeks, you've probably heard people say, or, or maybe you've even said it yourself, something like, I've never seen anything quite like this before. I've never quite seen, I've never quite been a part of something like that. And without question, these are certainly uncertain times in which we're living. And a lot of us feel like our, our nation and our world uh, is standing on the brink of something, but we just don't know for sure what it is. I know this. People at this point are starting to grow weary and starting to get a little restless, a little tired, uh, still stricken with fear, trying to decipher all of the information that's coming at us so often and so frequently, asking questions and wondering what's next? And not just what's next, but when? And so much more. And this is what I know for sure. I know this for sure. Uncertainty isn't something new. If we just pause for a moment, we think about all the uncertainty we faced in our life. Uncertainty isn't something new that we deal with. We've certainly dealt with uncertainty before. And the difference is this time, this time, we don't have anybody to go to and say, well, how did you deal with this? Well, because right now, none of us have dealt with this before. Well, one thing that we have in common is we've never, we've never experienced something quite like the COVID-19 crisis ever in, in our lifetime. And so what I want us to all understand in the next couple of weeks as we as we dive in and look at some scriptures and we look at some interactions and encounters with Jesus and, and some other things, what I want us to understand is this, that, that times may be uncertain. We may be in a very uncertain time period in our life, but God, God is not uncertain. So although times and circumstances and our, and our situations may be uncertain, God is not uncertain. And I believe that the Bible helps us address some of our fears and will help us put, put fear into a proper perspective. And for the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is I just want to look at a couple of key passages that have helped me in times of uncertainty. Uh, there are times of uncertainty that I've been able to lean into some of these encounters with Jesus and some of these other Bible stories, and they've given me comfort in those uncertain times. And we've titled this series, Be Still. Be Still. Because I want us to know that God still has us in his hands. God still has us in his hands. Therefore, we can be still. We can be still. When I think of being still, I just take a deep breath and ha. Ah, 
because being still in the presence of God is refreshing and renewing and rejuvenating and encouraging. And, and I think of the verse from Psalm 46, verse 10, that says this, Be still and know, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. And so be still. Be still. Why? Because God still has us in his hands. God still is in control. God, God is still on the throne. God is still God. And we need to do, trust him in that. And so there's a lot of Bible verses that I think of when I think of us being in the hands of God. And although there's no verse that says, hey, uh, he holds the whole world in his hands, there are a lot of verses. For example, Isaiah 41 verse 10 that says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you, and I will help you. And don't miss this. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will uphold you. Isaiah 41, verse 13, a couple of verses later, says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. A couple chapters over, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16 says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Psalm 139, verses 9 and 10 says this, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, even there, your hands shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Numbers chapter 6, which is a promise to Aaron, but ends up being a promise to all of us, says this, that the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make you his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so I want to dig into one of the most dynamic, maybe one of the most dramatic, maybe one of the most incredible moments in all of history, especially biblical history, and it's described as an event that took place in the upper room. It took place toward the end of Jesus's ministry, and I realize we just celebrated Easter last week, and this would have been something that we would have talked in Holy Week, but it has been brewing in me, and so it's towards the end of Jesus's ministry, and essentially, Jesus and his disciples have gathered for what is called the Passover meal. And they gathered in Jerusalem for this. Uh, Passover was an annual meal that Jew, Jew, sorry, Jewish families celebrated together. They would eat to remember what happened hundreds of years before when the night before, the night before, the Israelites would be freed out of Egypt, gathered, and ate a last meal before they would be released out of Egyptian slavery, out of Egyptian captivity. And so the Israelites, they'd been in slavery, Egyptian captivity and slavery for 400 years, literally 400 years, the Israelites, unanswered prayers and harsh treatment, 400 years where they were crying out to God and it seemed as if God was quiet. 400 years where they were begging and pleading for God to do something, yet... They still experienced this harsh 
treatment. And, and many of us know what happens. God raised up Moses to stand up against the, the most powerful man on the planet of the time, Pharaoh. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he demands that, that he let God's people go, that he frees them out of Egyptian captivity and slavery. And so Moses tells the Israelites, listen, tomorrow we're leaving. Tomorrow we're leaving, and tonight we're going to gather, and we're going to have a meal, and we're going to sacrifice a lamb, and we're going to take the blood of the lamb, and we're going to put it on our doorpost, and what's going to happen is the Israelites, after they've eaten this meal, they've slaughtered the lamb, and they've spread the blood on the doorpost. Moses says, this will be the last time, this will be the last meal, this will be the last celebration before we leave this land, and God lets us go free. And then we know the rest of the story. The death angel passes through Egypt and kills the firstborn of every household. And Pharaoh's own child dies. And he allows the Israelites to be free. And so the Israelites, they pack up all of their belongings. They, they pack up everything they have. Some of the Egyptian people even gave them gifts and they pack those up and they leave. They leave Egypt. Now, 1,400 years later, 1,400, Jesus He's gathering with his disciples to celebrate this historic event, this, this event where they would remember. And this time, however, the disciples, they're a little bit distracted. And what we have to understand is this isn't the first meal, the first Passover meal, the first celebration meal that Jesus and his disciples have together. This is towards the end of his ministry. They've been together for a few years now. They've celebrated the Passover meal. And the previous Passover meals that they celebrated, whoo! Jesus was popular. He, he was a celebrity of likes, of sorts. He was a cultural icon. He, thousands of people would gather to hear him speak and teach. And naturally, the disciples were feeling really good about themselves. They're they feeling like, hey, you know, I, I, some of the disciples even said, I'll be the one on your right and I'll be the one on your left. And, and they were feeling pretty good. They experienced a lot of momentum uh, with growing crowds, people following them, uh, incredible miracles and, and great teaching. But this time, a little bit different. Things weren't going very well. The popularity had diminished. Jesus kind of had to stay secluded because there were rumors that a group of people were trying to trap him and arrest him and possibly even put him on trial, ultimately desiring his death. And here's the thing. The disciples understood this, that if Jesus went down, they all went down. If Jesus' ministry stops, it was the end for them. And so that afternoon, they stayed in the countryside, and they waited for the sun to begin setting. And they entered into Jerusalem, almost as if there was a secrecy about where and when and how they would meet they were curious, where are we going to have the Passover? And Jesus wouldn't even tell them yet. Jesus kept talking about his death. Jesus was acting a little strange. Judas was acting a little strange. The disciples knew something was going on. They just didn't know. And this is what I know. The certainty the disciples were accustomed to, what they had gotten used to, their level of normalcy was gone. And now there were more questions than there were answers. And of course, the disciples would feel this way. 
I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. We even think this. We probably think what the disciples think also. The closer we are to God, the better my circumstances are supposed to be. When God is near, there's not less certainty. There should be more certainty. And so the disciples and Jesus, they sneak into Jerusalem and they gather for this annual feast. They eat together and things begin to get even crazier. And it was strange. There was no certainty. And this is how Jesus starts. I want to pick up in Mark chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 14. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen for you. But this is what it says. Mark 14, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Literally, Jesus says, one of you is going to hand me over. One of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to leave me and depart from me and abandon me, and you're going to choose a different way. Literally, literally, nobody asked the question, who is it yet? Because I think they already knew the answer to the questions that they had in their gut. What a punch in the face. Could you imagine inviting people over to your house for dinner? And then to say to one of them, uh, you're going to betray me. Eating just like inviting someone to your house now or being invited to someone's house, is a very intimate occasion. And here's Jesus reclining with the people he spent three years of ministry with. And he looks and he says, one of you is going to betray me. This intimate setting. And not only, not only is it one of you, but it is one of you who is eating with me right now. Go on to verse 19, it says this. And they began to be sorrowful. And they said to one another, Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Great question to ask. Verse 20 says, He said to them, It is one of the twelve. Actually, it is the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes that's a huge word, the word goes, as it is written of him. This just means that Jesus is saying things are about to change and things are about to be fulfilled and things, things that, that you are not anticipating are about to happen to me, but this is the way that it has to go. And so it says, the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. These are huge words. And this is what I want you to understand. When we look at the Bible, when we read Bible stories, when we dig into the narratives that have been written in the Bible, so much of what we read in the Bible was written in times of extreme uncertainty. And I just think this, as families and as churches, our nation literally facing a level of uncertainty right now like we've never faced before, the Bible and it's a great place to go. It just is. It's a great place to go. Likely, likely your favorite Bible story, you know, that favorite passage that you like to go to over and over, or that Bible character that you like to read about over and over and over again, uh, likely the one you grew up listening to, maybe you love it because you were uh, 
your favorite Sunday school teacher taught it to you. But it's that story that you go back to over and over. Maybe your favorite psalm or, or your favorite proverb or, or your favorite scripture likely, likely was written in a time period of uncertainty, in a circumstance of uncertainty, in a situation of uncertainty. And the Bible, the Bible is not a book about a bunch of rich people having fun. It just isn't. The Bible's not a book about a great week where Monday you get the job and Tuesday you go in and you get a raise and, and Wednesday your kids are signed as, as professional athletes and Thursday, you know, you win the brand new car and Friday you live happily ever after and Saturday, well, it just continues. As a matter of fact, you read the Bible, you're not going to read a lot of that. You can't find it. Every single passage that we typically draw hope from that we go to and we depend on God to speak into our souls was likely written about people facing difficulty, uncertainty, uncertain situations and circumstances, who, who then learned and understood that when times were uncertain, God was not. That's what we read about. When they didn't feel like God was working, that God was actively involved in their lives, or when they couldn't see what God was doing, they at least believed with their whole heart and their whole soul and their whole being that even though they couldn't see it and feel God's activity, they knew that God was still in control. The Bible is not filled with feel-good messages sometimes for a world we don't live in. Here we find God active, and he is speaking directly into uncertain times. For example, do you remember the young man named Joseph? A picture of being Joseph, all right? God's delivered this promise to you, and all of a sudden you find yourself in the bottom of a well. And you can hear your brothers having a conversation about you. Here's the question. Should we kill him? Or should we sell him? Should we kill him? Or should we sell him? And I imagine that Joseph for a moment could have said, God, you gave me these promises. Where are you? Why aren't you here? Why am I at the bottom of a well? But guess what? If you read the rest of the story, you know God was with him in the bottom of the well. How about King David? I love this moment at the end of King David's reign as king, that awkward day when he's awakened in the middle of the night because his son has raised up an army and is going to invade the capital city and is going to take over the reign as king. And we might ask, where was God? And what was God doing? And if we keep reading the rest of King David's character story, his narrative, we know God was with him even in the midst of that. There's a woman in the Old Testament named Jochebed. How many of you are familiar with who that is? She was a frightened mother who wrapped her son up in a cloth and put him in a blanket and then placed him in a basket so that maybe Egyptian soldiers wouldn't kill him as Pharaoh had commanded and demanded. And guess what? God was there. The baby was found, and he was named Moses. There's another mother, Mary. Remember Mary in the New Testament, the mother of Jesus? Oh, Herod's jealousy, it just increased, and, and so he called for a sword to kill male children. 
Why? Because he had heard that the king, a new king was born and, and a king was going to take over his throne. And, and so the mother had to flee along with Joseph and baby Jesus. And we might ask the question, where was God? What was God doing? What was God, uh, where was he? Why, why did he seem to be silent? But if we read this narrative, when we understand God was with them, how about Paul? Paul thought God called him, but he found himself landed in a Roman prison. What did Paul do? Locked up, shut down with a stay-at-home order. The church thrived. And the church grew. And you might wonder, where was God in Paul's life? God was right there. And so we go on to Mark chapter 14, verse 22. Listen to this. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And said, here, take this. This is my body. Uh, By the way, Jesus is basically saying, this isn't what you think it is. I'm changing things up a little bit. Things are turning around. And so he says this, take, this is my body. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. If you're one of the disciples, I imagine you're going crazy right now and you're thinking, stop it. This death talk, Jesus, is a little too much. It's a little overboard. It's negative. It's exhausting. Jesus, if you're from God, then then turn this story around because this isn't the way things are supposed to go. If you're really from God, then things are supposed to be good and things are supposed to be filled with blessings and I'm supposed to be free and I'm supposed to be prosperous. Stop this talk. And so they leave the room. And they're on their way to this place called the garden where Jesus literally is going to be arrested. And look at verse 27. And Jesus says to them on the way, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. They missed it. Because what he does is he refers to the event, the big event, the event we just celebrated last Sunday, the resurrection. He's, gonna, he's telling them, I'm going to go through this pain. I'm going to go through this suffering. I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be bloodied. And I'm going to be crucified. But I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter, Peter probably speaks for all of humanity. He, this isn't settling right with him. And he, he almost says what, what all of us are thinking. He gets frustrated because if Jesus is the son of God, this isn't the way things are supposed to go. If Jesus is really from God, then, then enough of this. Enough, enough, enough. More certainty, not less certainty. Enough bad news. Uh, enough about arrest. Enough about betrayal. Enough about death. We need more faith and we need more miracles. We need more activity. More, 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 and more. And so Peter says in verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. Even though they will, I will not. Even if, Jesus says, or Peter says, I will not, yet only a few hours away, 
Peter's going to be intimidated by a teenage girl, which most of us should be. But a teenage girl who asks him about his relationship with Jesus. Remember what Peter says? I didn't know the man. I didn't know him. I know what you're talking about, but you got the wrong guy. And as we face and as we experience this high level of uncertainty with our families and with our jobs, with our children, with our culture, our leadership, our economy, our income, our retirement, our scholarships, our ability to go to school and stay in school, as we think about all of that, as we face personal, national, and global uncertainty, I have a question. And this is the question. Is it possible that God is still working? Is it possible that God is still working and and that God is still accomplishing his purpose even when we can't see it and even when we can't feel it? In other words, here's what I'm asking. Can we trust God? And can we maintain faith in God when there is no evidence of his activity or of his work? especially of his work and his activity and what he's trying to accomplish in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our state, in our nation, and frankly, across the globe. See, this this question is so important. Is it possible, is it possible that God's still at work, that God's still doing things, even though I can't feel it and see it? Is it possible that I can maintain my faith and I can trust in God even when I'm uncertain? See, the answer to this question for us will determine so much about our lives. It'll especially determine how we respond to this uncertain time. And too often, we are like Peter, and we connect God to prosperity and health and success and profitability and and riches. We often connect God with forward motion, never a retreat, but always moving forward, seeing that things always get better. We often connect God's presence to blessings, often physical and tangible blessings. And yet I think, I think this. If we were to sit down with the disciples three or six months after this event, And we were to say to them, hey guys, what was your darkest hour? When was your hardest time? When was it most difficult for you? When did you doubt? And and when was the darkest moment that you experienced? And when did you have the least amount of hope? And when when did you question whether or not this was worth it or not? And they probably would all say to us, It was that afternoon when we didn't go into Jerusalem. But then when we finally did, we got to the upper room. And Jesus said that one of us was going to betray him. And one of us did. And we went on a walk. And he was arrested. And it all went downhill from there. I mean, it was in the upper room where it all started. Jesus said things, and Jesus even told us things were going to get worse, not better. Why? why, When when Judas betrayed him, he promised things were going to get even worse than that. And not only would one betray, but, but we would all deny him, and we just didn't believe it because that's not the way things were supposed to be. And the one who promised never to deny did deny. 
And then for the next several hours, all of us fell away. All of us turned our backs on Jesus, and we watched him get arrested, and we watched him get put on trial, and we watched him take beatings, and we watched him crucified on a cross, and God clearly wasn't doing anything in those moments. And then we could ask the disciples this question. Hey, guys, when did God accomplish his greatest work? You know what they would have answered? It was the same time. It was the exact same time. The same hours that seemed like he was absent, that he was distant, that he was missing, that he wasn't doing anything at all, even though the beginning of these three days were complete despair for the disciples. And the darkest hours for the disciples and the hardest times for the disciples, it was in these darkest hours that God was accomplishing his greatest work. It was in these very moments that God was literally redeeming the world for his cause. That was bringing about reconciliation where we're literally these moments that took place would be celebrated like we just did thousands of years later. God was accomplishing his greatest work in the midst of the disciples' darkest moments. Our current circumstances may be uncertain, but God is never uncertain. And this is our story. This is our story. Those of us who are Jesus' disciples, we're made out of broken things. He turns good out of broken things. And when we can see that God is behind or God is in or God is working through our uncertain circumstances, oh, we can find hope and peace and joy. Now let me just be practical for a minute because I realize most of us, most of us listening you might be sitting there and you might say, this is really great news, Tom. It's not helpful. <laughs> I get that. What I just shared with you won't get your job back. What I just shared with you won't get our kids back to school. What I just shared with you doesn't guarantee that you'll have a job tomorrow. What I just shared with you won't help pay the bills that you have to pay. It won't restore your 401k. Never has there been a time, never has there been a time that I wish as a pastor that I could find more ways to help more people. And honestly, I know, I know that this message doesn't practically help you get your job back or get the kids back into school or guarantee that your wife will have her job tomorrow or pay the bills or restore your retirement. But my hope and my prayer is that you will be able to find and maintain faith and hope until things get more certain for you. Why? Because God is certain. And my hope and my prayer is that we can all go to bed at night and we can rest peacefully with the confidence that God has not abandoned us, that God is still with us and God is still at work around us and in us and through us. And my hope and prayer is that God will, we will be motivated, 
daily, every single day, to be on the lookout for his grace and his mercy that is promised to us. And my hope and my prayer is that we will stop leaning in the direction where we make things worse and we lean into Jesus who can sustain our hope and our peace and our joy. And my hope and my prayer is that we will be protected from despair. Why? Why? Because God, God still has us. God is still in control. God is still on the throne, in the throne room. And therefore, I can be still. I can be still. I don't know if you know what this is or not. It's called a cassette tape. (laughs) Right there, an old cassette tape. I've kept this, although I don't have a machine at my house that would run it. On August... 15th of 1993 my youth pastor died it was kind of a weird moment for me I'd come back from spending the summer in Wyoming with my grandparents and I had just spent time with Kenny in his office where he talked to me about giving my life to Jesus We scheduled a baptism. I would be baptized on September 5th, 1993. And then on Sunday, August 15th, Kenny, 28 years old, died and went to be with Jesus. And as somebody who was turning to God and leaning into God, ooh, this didn't make sense to me. It was personal. But on this cassette tape is his funeral service where my minister, Leon, preached about Romans 8, and about how God works things out for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, where he talked about how the Bible is filled with so much despair and that out of despair and hardship and trials and difficulties and bad situations and bad circumstances, God can do his greatest work. And maybe I stand here today remembering what I learned that week as a 13-year-old boy. His funeral was on the morning of my first day of junior high. I got to skip the first day of school and be at his funeral. But God, ever since that moment, that would have been my first moment, has been constant and consistent and faithful And no matter what circumstances I face, and as I started to list some of them, some of them are big and some of them are small, but I have faced a lot of uncertain times. My hope and my faith never wavered. Because even though I couldn't see God working, and even though I didn't feel like he was doing something, on the other end of it I was able to look back and see that his hand was in the midst of all of it and I don't know what you're going through I don't know what your specific situation is but it's possible it is so possible that God is still doing his best work even though you can't feel it even though you can't see it, even though we have more questions than we have answers. 
So my hope, my prayer is that we will look every day for his new grace and his new mercies in our life. Let's pray. God, I I don't know for sure what everybody is dealing with. I know that as a nation, as a state, as a church, as a church, we've never faced anything like this before. Never in my life did I think that I'd ever become comfortable or need to become comfortable to speak into a camera lens. Never in my life did I expect the value of a phone call to become so precious. Never in my life did I think that a box of cereal could be so meaningful. God, we we are facing uncertain times. We're growing weary. We're getting frustrated. And some of us are asking, God, what are you doing? God, what I want for myself and what I want for for all of us who are gathered listening right now is I want us to put our hope and our trust in you. I want us to look for your grace and your mercies every day. And I want us to believe with our whole heart that you have us in your hands, that you're still in control, and that, God, you are still on the throne, in the throne room. And I can be still. I can be still. We can be still trust that you alone are God. Help us look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If there's something specific we can pray for you about, please use our communication card and communicate that with us this week. You can go to our website. You can submit a prayer request. Let's worship some more. And let's ask God in this worship just to fill our souls. Maybe the best thing you can do is just sit, close your eyes, listen, and say, God, here I am. I'm still before you. Do your greatest work in me and through me. Let's worship.